We are in the section about Jesus Christ and the Apostles' Creed. It began with God the Father. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We're in that section about Jesus Christ. Remember, the Apostles' Creed is a statement of what you believe. And if you were, having, if you were pressed on the question, what do I believe? Apostles' Creed's the answer to that question in about a hundred words. It doesn't go into incredible detail, but in a moment like that, you don't have to give incredible detail. Just frame the basics of what is it that Christianity believes about Jesus Christ. So let me just start right there. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Here's where we begin. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord? And we affirmed, yeah, that's what we believe, all right. Do you believe in Jesus as being conceived by the Holy Ghost? Yes, that's what we believe because that's what the Scripture teaches. Last week I spoke at length about that. Both Matthew and Luke took big risk to include this language in their narrative of the birth of Christ, knowing it would open them up to criticism, talking about the virgin birth. And both Matthew and Luke, I hope you heard the podcast this week, they went to great detail, great lengths, to give you a backstory before the story. Now they wanted to begin the story of Jesus and talk about his birth, but they would not launch into the story without first backing up and saying, let us give you backstory, because you will not understand the story correctly unless you understand the backstory behind the birth of Christ. His was not the only unusual birth in the story of Israel. Matthew's very clear on that. His is unique in the virgin birth, but listen, miracle births have a lot of standing in the story of Israel. And he tells that story in a fascinating way that just captivates us and draws us in. So yes, we believe Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary? That's actually what Christianity believes and teaches And for 2,000 years, we don't make apology for that. It's exactly what the Scripture says, and that's what uh, Christianity holds forth. But the apostles didn't leave it there. Uh, The apostles now bring the story. Listen, here's what's interesting. The apostles talk about, or the apostles' creed talks about, the birth of Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then it's going to skip the whole what Jesus did in between, and now it's going to go right to Calvary. It's going to go right to Passover week, uh, uh, 30 to 33 A.D., and we're going right to the crucifixion scene. The Apostles' Creed takes big leaps to move through the story so that you don't get bogged down with all the in-between. Although the in-between is important and you should know the in-between, we're just talking about the what-do-you-believe statements. So the Creed's going to go from the birth of Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, right to... The crucifixion, death, and all that's coming at the end. So here's where the, what the creed says next. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, died, was buried, he descended to the dead. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended to the dead. Now I want you to begin to ask yourself some questions, some big questions about what you're seeing. Challenge yourself intellectually and theologically and spiritually this morning. Why does Pontius Pilate 
make an appearance in the most famous Christian creed of history. His name is a glaring red light. When you read the thing, it just jumps right out at you. Pontius Pilate, we're talking about God the Father, Jesus Christ, Mary I get. Pontius Pilate, sitting right here in the middle of our affirmation of faith about who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are. It almost seems out of place, but it's not. Why is Pilate making an appearance in the most famous Christian creed? I want you to be thinking about that. Why was it necessary to make four detailed statements, four detailed claims about the clash uh, and the results of the clash uh, with Pilate and Jesus Christ? Is Pilate the solitary villain in the story of Jesus Christ? He's the only one whose name appears, but is he the only villain in this a theological understanding of, of who Jesus is and what happened with him as a man. What about the other religious leaders? Matter of fact, I might even zoom the telescope way out for a moment and say, what about all of us? What's our part? Pilate's name is sitting there, but what's our part in this whole drama? Raises other questions for me as I study. What about Pilate's wife? Is she condemned by her husband's decision also? Is she forever stained by his decision about Jesus? Pilate and Jesus represent the inevitable clash between two kingdoms. Two kingdoms are going to collide. It was forecast in Genesis 3. Two kingdoms are going to collide. And the whole book of your Bible, the whole story that you've been reading is about a king and his kingdom and there's other kings and kingdoms and they're not God's king and kingdoms and they're going to have an inevitable confrontation and collision in the very near future. Pilate is Rome. This is what I want you to think about. Pilate represents Rome. He is Rome's official. He is Rome's procurator. He is Rome's governor of the Holy Land. He represents Rome. He is Rome to the Bible. When the Jews are thinking about Rome, there is Pilate on the throne in the land of Israel. Rome is the kingdom empowered by the forces of evil. The Roman emperor is the Roman Empire. These two are inseparable. See, in America, we don't think this way because we have a different form of government. We don't have kings, all that stuff I've talked about in previous sermons. In America, you would never say the president is America. You would just say the president is the occupant of the White House and we may or may not have him in a few days. That's what we would say in America. You like him, you keep him, you don't, you trade her in. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you move, move them in and out and you... You do as the will of the people decides. That is not the way of the world, though, historically, not in a monarchy, and that is the norm of the world. Rome's king was Rome. He was a sovereign, and whatever he said was the law. There is no difference between the Roman Empire and the Roman emperor. They were one in the same. So you've got this clash that's coming just so you have some theological understanding, Rome 
Rome, the Roman Empire, represents the culmination of Daniel's vision. And I don't have time to teach on the book of Daniel this morning, but Daniel had a vision of an image. And Daniel's prophesying about here are the coming kingdoms that are going to rule the world. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire is the feet of the statue. And I saw that there was a stone cut without hands, and it flew down and smashed the image upon its feet. And the image just was nuked, basically, vaporized into dust. The stone is Jesus Christ, and it smashes the image on the feet in prophecy. It means the kingdoms of this world, the image of Daniel, are coming into a collision with God's kingdom and his king. And when God's king and the world's kingdoms clash, it's going to be a big old explosion, is what Daniel's saying. Well, Rome is the feet of Daniel's statue. Rome's emperor, listen carefully to what I'm saying, Rome's emperor is the beast of the book of Revelation. That's a real life first century reality, not some far away future prophecy. Rome is the beast. The emperor is the beast. Rome is the whore drunk on the blood of the martyrs. That's real time writing for the first century. They're saying this is what we're up against. Rome is Uh, the one in control of the economic power of the world, and you bow to Rome or you don't buy or sell. That is the mark of the beast. Gosh, I'm just incredibly shocked. I'm incredibly ashamed of myself and the clergy and how we have mistaught and undertaught God's people for a hundred years in this country to where people are on Facebook saying, don't get the jab, it's the mark of the beast. Are you insane? Seriously? Uh, Listen, the beast is Rome. We've got Revelation so fouled up and our theology so messed up. Sure, there are still antichrists at work in our generation and in every generation. But listen, the kingdoms are going to clash with Jesus Christ. This is the biggie. And the first century church, now I want you to go back 2,000 years, the first century church found herself in the epicenter of the battle between the two kingdoms. The first century church, Jesus' apostles and those converts are standing between, right in the middle of this epic battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth represented by the Roman Empire. One kingdom was bringing in its teaching and its ideas and its government and its policy with love and forgiveness and kindness and suffering. And the other kingdom was bringing in its policy and its rule with violence and military might and the threat of a Roman cross. And the church was standing right in the middle of that clash. When we think of the cross, we tend to think of the icon. We think of jewelry. We think of a steeple. We think of something on the wall in our house that we've painted or decorated or or bought from Hobby Lobby that gives us warm feelings about the love of Jesus Christ. And for us, when we think... Now, we're 2,000 years on the other side of this. And so when we think cross looking back, we just think of the icon 
you think of a cross much the way you think of the Apple logo. It's iconic. It needs no explanation. You see it, you know what it is. We think of the cross much in the same way you would think of the golden arches. If you're driving down the street and you see the big golden arches, no one has to explain what's happening. It means a Big Mac is a block away. That's what it means. It's just right there and you know what's there. There's no explanation needed. It's universally understood what is available there and what those arches represent. So we find that when we think about a cross, we're thinking about icons. But that's not the way first century Christianity thought of the cross. And so every once in a while we have to get out of our thinking and get into their thinking to get the story straight. When the first century church thought of the cross, they thought of something completely different. Crucifixions were very common then. Again, let me just say some obvious things out loud. Jesus wasn't the only one crucified. He and the two thieves were not the only three people crucified. Listen, crucifixions happened all the time. And crucifixions were common in the first century world, especially as a punishment instituted by Rome against slaves and rebels, and all Jews were considered slaves. The cross was how Rome communicated, we are in power, and this is what we do to people who get in our way. It was a statement. It wasn't just an icon. Here are men and women and children being crucified down the highway for all the world to see. And they're making a statement saying, we are in charge. Our kingdom stands. Do not mess with us. This is what we do to people who get in our way. Crucifixion was incredibly horrific. There are no words, and I I could go just on this topic at some length and not expound the horror of crucifixion. The victims were left on the crosses for days. They didn't always die immediately. That's the whole point of the thing. The whole point is to prolong it, to agonize it, to draw it out. The whole point is not a swift and noble death. The whole point is a shameful, protracted, torturous, agonizing death. That was the point of crucifixion. They hung on the crosses many times for days and days until they expired. The birds came and pecked their flesh and the rats scurried up the cross and vermin gnawed at their dead bodies. And they hung, can you imagine a dead body in the 105 degree Texas afternoon hanging on a cross for a week until the body just falls to the ground in a pile of putrefying goo. That's what we're dealing with. And that's what Rome wanted the world to see. Rome intentionally executed rebels in the most public fashion possible. One hundred years earlier, you've no doubt seen the movie Spartacus and, or know something about it, the slave rebellion led by the slave Spartacus. When the Spartacus rebellion happened in the Roman Empire and was finally put down a hundred years earlier, Rome rounded up those who were involved and implicated in the rebellion and they crucified 6,000 of of the Spartacus followers. 6,000 people were crucified on the highway in Rome called the Appian Way. 6,000 people were crucified on the side of the highway called the Appian Way 
across every 40 yards for 130 miles. That's across every 40 yards from here to Waco. That's across every 40 yards from here to Wichita Falls and a little beyond. That's across every 40 yards down I-35 from here almost to Norman. That's across every 40 yards from here to Tyler, Texas. Have you made any of those drives going out of the city? Across every 40 yards. Now you people who drive slightly over the speed limit, you understand how fast things go by you. I just want you to think about that when you're doing 85 down 35 later this afternoon. And I want you to think about how 40 yards looks like. That means beside your window it'd go flip, 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 flip. And you'd be one person after another being crucified down the highway. Do you think Rome was making its point? Every traveler got the point. And it wasn't just a political point that Rome was making. It was also a religious point because Rome had deified its emperors, especially after their death. They would declare them to be God. And sometimes while they were alive, they declared them to be God. They deified. They made the emperor a God to which you had to swear allegiance, bend the knee, sacrifice to, pray to, etc. They deified the emperors, especially after death, so that the next emperor, who was blood, uh, they were called the son of God. They called the emperors, listen to what I'm saying, they called the emperors the son of God because they just deified his daddy, who was the previous emperor. This is Rome's thinking. And rebelling against Caesar wasn't just a political crime, it was blasphemy. And crucifixion was also a theological statement against defying Caesar as Lord. All right, now let me see if I can bring the introduction together. That's just the introduction, okay? Let me bring the introduction together for you. Remember, the Bible is God's story about a king and his kingdom. For our small group on Sunday night that's meeting, it's God's story about a king and his kingdom. And they're updating the story with every new speaker that comes into the Bible and bringing the story right up unto real-time events. And every person who's confronted with the newly inaugurated kingdom of God, as Jesus presented it in the Gospels, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. So John the Baptist started preaching. The kingdom of heaven is right here. You better get yourself ready and repent of your sins and get baptized because the king is coming. And Jesus showed up preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And every person who's confronted with the newly inaugurated kingdom of God has to make a personal decision about where your loyalties lie. Is Jesus king or is Caesar king? Is Jesus king or is Western democracy king? Is Jesus king or is comfort king? Is Jesus king or is pleasure king? Is Jesus king or who is king? This is the pressing issue. Do you stand with Jesus as king or do you stand with King Caesar who builds the highways and the public schools and where do your loyalties lie? Do you stand with the kingdom of God or do you stand with the kingdoms of this world? And the whole biblical narrative has this incredible tension that's building as you start reading the Gospels about who is Jesus. 
This is what the Apostles' Creed is trying to explain. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus God's king? Because the whole Old Testament is talking about a king is coming, God sending his king, God will send his king, God will send somebody and make it right. Messiah, king, anointed one, all the same thing. God will send his ruler to make it right. Is Jesus the fulfillment of all of that? Is he the one the world has been looking for? Is he God's king? Now we know what the apostles have taught. They've taught yes to that question. Matter of fact, they said in their own words, we believe you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. We believe you're God's king, the son of the living God, was Peter's confession. And so now the apostles are challenging us, and each of us has to confront our own fear of deciding and standing for King Jesus. Now, Last week, I gave you the backstory to the birth of Christ, the backstory to the virgin birth. The story doesn't make sense without the backstory. If you'll indulge me for about 20 minutes here, I want to tell you a backstory. Because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and what's recorded in the scripture doesn't make full sense until you know the backstory. So let me tell you the backstory as quick as I can tell it. More than 20 centuries ago, just go back in history now in your mind, turn the pages backwards, more than 20 centuries ago, a Roman king fathered an illegitimate child. Nine months passed and the baby was born and they were very pleased that it was a little boy. The father was prepared to take financial responsibility for the little boy but since he was born illegitimately he would never be recognized as the heir he would never be official son in the will because of the way in which he came to be born the father said I'll take financial responsibility for him and I'll care for him and I'll make sure that he has what he needs just no public recognition that he is my legitimate heir Very early on, when he was just young and developing, very early, the little boy developed a very mean disposition. He was a hothead. In school, he turned into a bully. And they sent young Pilate off to military school because he was so mean. Well, military school, he took to military school like a duck takes to water. They actually rewarded aggression. They actually rewarded his meanness, if you want to think about it that way. And the more violent and the more aggressive he was in carrying out his training and his tactics, they began to look at young Pilate and say, now this guy's a rising star. Such a rising star that Pilate graduated from the military academy early. And he was on the fast track, and before the age most people do, Pilate rose to the rank of tribune. It's not a familiar term to you, tribune. The position of tribune in the Roman military, tribune is a rank that men attain to in their late 20s, typically, and you achieve the rank of tribune, hold that position for a few years, and your next step is to the Roman Senate. Is that clear in your mind now? You go military career, get to be a tribune, Your next step into your 30s and 40s will be to try to step over into the Senate 
and break into the real power circle that controls the country. The problem is it's very difficult to break into the power circles. We all get that, right? Like in America, you got to be like a gajillionaire to run for office and be the president or, or even to run for a small seat, local seat here. It takes tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars typically to run for a political seat and be able to win it. It's hard to break in to the power circle. You typically need two things to get into that club. <clears throat> you need the right opportunity and you need a patron. You need the right circumstances to align. In other words, some senator has to be outgoing and uh, somebody has to, be a, has to be a vacant seat. Somebody's got to be of the right candidate and the opportunity has to align. Plus, you have to have a patron. You have to have a coach. You have to have a financial backer. You have to have somebody who, who recommends and promotes you and, and opens the way for you. Well, the opportunity eventually presented itself when the Roman Empire had an uprising over by the Black Sea. Uh, the, out in the edge of the province, on the edge of the Roman Empire, the people rose up against Rome. And so <clears throat> Rome said, what shall we do about this uprising? And they said, well, let's, <clears throat> let's send the young hotshot. Let's send uh, Pontius Pilate down there. Let's send young Pilate down there. And so Pilate was dispatched by the Senate with the 12th Roman legion. Now, I know history bore some of you to tears. Stay with me. It's important. The Roman Senate dispatched Pilate with 12th Roman legion to march out, to sail out, and then march out to where the rebellion was on the edge of the Roman Empire. And if you're wondering how that played out, when Pontius Pilate got there with his soldiers, he led the soldiers with such brutal power and such swift, overwhelming force that they just crushed the rebellion like that. And immediately, Pilate's opportunity had turned into something even bigger. When Pilate came home to Rome, they said, basically, you can name your posting, sir. We're so impressed with what you did and how you've performed with the 12th Roman Legion as Tribune. You can name, you can name your posting. And so uh, he was promoted to the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard, the numbers change with different emperors, but it's between six to 9,000, what you would call secret service. It's the people who guard the emperor and the senate. No soldiers are allowed armed soldiers in the city of Rome, only the Praetorian Guard, only the, what you'd call the secret service. And so Pilate was promoted now to, to live in Washington, to live in Rome. You see, he's working his way right into the inner circle now. He's promoted to a member of the Praetorian Guard, and now he has a benefactor. He has an opportunity, now he has a benefactor. And his benefactor is the head of the Praetorian Guard, a man named Sejanus, quite famous in history. And Sejanus took Pontius Pilate, the young tribune, into the Praetorian Guard and began to coach him and to groom him for political office, which is the next step for a tribune. But here's what no one knew. What no one knew at the time is that Pilate's boss, Sejanus, the head of the Praetorian Guard, had secret political aspirations of his own. In other words, the whole time that Sejanus was protecting the emperor, Sejanus is plotting and he's planning <clears throat> to kill the emperor and take over the country himself. Sejanus has political inspiration, so the way he uh, orchestrated this is Sejanus began to take all of these young men who were very powerful leaders in Rome 
and put them into seats of power all over the Roman Empire. Sejanus would write glowing letters of recommendation, if you would, for his little inner circle and get them into governorships and consulships and as ambassadors and as representatives of the Roman Empire. Well, lo and behold, another opportunity presented itself. We need, a, we need a ruler in the Middle East. There are a group of people that no one has ever successfully been able to rule. They are stubborn. They are stiff-necked. That's what they say about themselves. Their laws are peculiar, and no one has successfully from the outside ever been able to govern the people of Judea. So Sejanus says to Tiberius, Caesar, Hey, those people that nobody can seem to control, listen, I've got a young hotshot on my staff who put down the Black Sea Uprising. He's been a loyal member of the Praetorian Guard. He, he, he's of no, nobility, although illegitimate, still nobility. And I want to recommend Pontius Pilate to be the uh, governor of Judea. And Sejanus wrote him a glowing recommendation, and Tiberius Caesar stamped it approved. Pontius Pilate is now going to be the new governor of Judea. Let me pause the story and cut back a scene now. Claudia Procula is the illegitimate daughter, granddaughter of Augustus Caesar. Don't get confused, it's all good. She's an illegitimate granddaughter. Everybody's having kids with lots of mistresses and, and all kinds of stuff in this setup. Augustus Caesar disapproved of her mother and had her banished from court. Well, when she was banished, obviously the granddaughter was banished with her and they fell out of favor with Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar is long gone. Well, there's a new Caesar in town. And when the new Caesar, Tiberius, came into power, Tiberius thought quite fondly of Claudia Procula and brought her back and restored, restored her into the favor of, of court and actually adopted Claudia as his own daughter. So Claudia grew up in the equestrian class, the inner power circle of Roman society. And as a part of the in crowd, she would attend all the right parties and move in all the right circles. And as she moved in those social circles within the city of Rome, she fell in love with a promising young military officer who was also serving in Rome at that time. Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Pilatus in Latin, he got the nickname Pilatus, Pilatus means skilled with a javelin, does that tell you everything you need to know, this is, this is the, the young hothead, skilled, incredibly skilled with throwing the javelin, a very short spear about that long, that they named him Pontius Pilatus. Uh, the young javelin thrower. You just kind of, you got a picture in your mind, don't you? Cocky, hot-tempered, can be a bit of a bully, skilled with the javelin, ruthless when it comes to crushing Rome's enemies, and no doubt he was a striking figure in that Praetorian Guard purple outfit that they wore. And young Claudia fell in love with the javelin thrower. Now, a lot of this is hard to find in the history books, and I'll make some assumptions based on what I know. I'm guessing that Claudia and Pilate are really young, somewhere between 25 and 30 years of age at this point. It fits with what we know about Tribune. It fits with what we know about military officers. fits with what we know about arranged marriages in the Roman court at this time. 
They're probably 25 to 30 years of age. All right, let me see if I can recap the story to to where we are right now so you don't get lost. Here's what we've got. We have an arrogant, hot-tempered young man, handsome in a military uniform. We've got a young princess who's accustomed to a life of privilege being carried around on a little red velvet pillow, okay? She's all about the social life of Rome. We've got a strange people across the sea that no one has ever been able to rule. Very uh, stubborn and stiff-necked people. We've got a boss who secretly is plotting the overthrow of the Roman emperor, the assassination of the emperor. And we've got the kingdom of God being unveiled across the sea at the same time. Does anybody see conflict coming in this story? We have a hot-headed young military officer, a privileged princess, a people who cannot be ruled, and the Son of God across the sea unveiling the kingdom of God and repentance is being preached because the new king is here. The new kingdom is here. There's a better way than the world's way. This is God's king. At the same time, you've got the Praetorian Guard head plotting the assassination of Caesar. Nobody knows yet. It's not been uncovered yet, but it's happening behind the scenes right now. This is backstory, and this is why you need to know the backstory. The wives of Roman diplomats, diplomats normally did not travel with their husbands. Who wants to go to the province? When you live in Rome, why do you want to go to Judea? <laughs> I mean, when you have the arts and the culture and society... Why do you want to go to some dusty, dirty, backwater place which is really bizarre and the customs are strange and the food is strange and the water is not drinkable and all of these kinds of things? So the wives didn't normally travel with the husbands abroad, most preferred the comfort and social life of Rome to the province. We do know, however, from the historical record and from the biblical record that Claudia Procula traveled with Pontius Pilate in his posting as procurator of Judea. Well, we can assume then a couple of things. Safe assumption, I think. We can suggest then that she obtained permission from the emperor Tiberius Caesar in order to travel with her husband. Somebody had to approve that. Somebody had to stamp that paper approved so that she could go with him to the province. And I would assume, secondly from that, that she genuinely loved Pilate. I might assume, thirdly, just if I want to cast her character in my mind, I might assume, thirdly, that this was a woman of adventure. She had some kind of real adventurous spirit in her and wanted to see the world outside of Rome. And some of the history books would prove that that would be a safe assumption. Pilate would have been about the same age as Jesus of Nazareth. Pilate would have been the same age, roughly, as Jesus of Nazareth when he arrived in Judea in the latter part of 26 A.D. When Pilate landed in Judea, being who he is and knowing what he was sent to do, to rule a people who cannot be ruled, Pilate had formulated a plan in his mind and he told the plan to the soldiers when he landed in Judea. He said, I brought all these flags from Rome. I brought all of these busts of Caesar, these statues from Rome. We have all of these golden shields commemorating Roman victory and Roman power. And here's what I want you soldiers to do. Now, he had just just arrived in Judea. And he intends to show them who's in charge. 
Here's what I want you soldiers to do. I want you to take all this Roman paraphernalia, all this military power symbols, and tonight when the sun goes down, I want you to march up to Jerusalem under cover of darkness. When the sun goes down, we'll start our journey, and we're going to take all of this stuff with us, and we're going to redecorate Jerusalem tonight. And when the sun comes up in the morning, they're going to see the Roman shields and the Roman standards, and they're going to see the busts of Tiberius Caesar, and the people of this weird land are going to know that the kingdom of Caesar is here, and we are not going anywhere. We are large, and we are in charge. And that's exactly what they did. It's recorded in the history book of Flavius Josephus. And when the sun rose the next morning in the city of Jerusalem, the Jews of Jerusalem went berserk. Because you'll remember their Old Testament law says you may not have unto you any graven image. And those busts of Caesar and golden shields and flags from Rome constituted idols in the city of Jerusalem. And those men of Israel went absolutely crazy. They lost their minds when the sun came up. The sun came up and here's all of this paraphernalia. They, here, let me give you a, a kind of equivalent. If you were to go to bed tonight, wake up in the morning, and it were to look like downtown Berlin in 1941. Does everybody have a picture in your mind of what I'm talking about? The big black swastika on the red background. The big flags everywhere. You got that picture in your mind. Can you imagine if you drove into Fort Worth tomorrow going to work and the whole highway was lined with those uh, Nazi flags and picture billboards of Hitler and all of this? You, you know how that would just make you throw up in your mouth uh, when you saw that? Now you're understanding what, the, what happened with, with the Jews in this moment. They said, you're going to take down these things. We'll not allow these things. We're forbidden to have these things in the holy city. And they're screaming at Pilate and the soldiers and the people by the thousands and thousands came out into the street to rebel against Pontius Pilate in his first days. We are forbidden to have these things. You will take them down, Mr. Pilate. And Pilate basically just gave him the hand. And he ignored them. And he went down to his palace at Caesarea on the sea. They came down to the palace at Caesarea on the sea. And thousands and thousands of Jews staged a sit-in in the city of Caesarea. They're just everywhere. Sea of people. It shut down commerce. You couldn't trade. You couldn't travel. You couldn't do business. You couldn't do anything. The whole country is gridlocked. Just people on the highways, people everywhere. Went on for six days. They were sitting there singing psalms in the courtyard of Pontius Pilate. Six days. It rained. Didn't send them home. They stayed. And then on the sixth day, Pilate finally got wearisome with it. On the sixth day, Pilate went out to the throne at the pavement. And he sat down and he told the soldiers to come in and surround the people. They drew their weapons and Pontius Pilate said, You'll stop riding or I'll cut your heads off today. You decide which way you want to go. And lo and behold... Josephus records that the Jewish leaders begin to unbutton their tunics and turn down their collars and bow their heads and say, go ahead, Pilate, cut. Check, mate. Now, if you're Pilate, what do you do? I want you to think about it for a minute. This is the backstory. If you're Pilate, what do you do? No doubt he thought about the report he would write tomorrow. Dear Tiberius Caesar, today I slaughtered 6,000 taxpayers 
Today I slaughtered 6,000 taxpayers in front of my house. Many more riots will follow. Many more will die. Your loving governor, Pontius Pilatus. He's like, I can't send that report. I just got here. So here's what he did. The Jews were so fierce that Pontius Pilate had to back down. And Pilate came out and sat on the throne. And Pilate said this. He said, okay, okay. It was all a test. I've heard you people are hard to rule. And I just want to see where the boundaries lied. And now that I can see you're so sincere in this and that you're really, you know, this violating God and idols and all this, now I can see where your heart is. He said, okay. He said, I'll pull the statues and the flags out of Jerusalem and I'll, I'll concede in this issue, but I want you to know I will not make any more concessions beyond this. And he was not lying. He ruled them with a rod of iron. He was not afraid to shed Jewish blood and, and he would shed it and they would riot. And then it would calm down and then he would do something and shed blood and they would riot. And, and this was the seemingly the pattern in Judea. On one occasion he dispatched his troops chasing a group of criminals north into Galilee. And when the troops went north, the criminals went south. And so the troops turned around and chased the criminals south for a while. And the criminals all ran into the city of Jerusalem. Now so real are these stories that Jesus refers to this story in Luke 13. The criminals ran into the, to, to the, to the Jerusalem. The, the soldiers said, okay, we've got you now. And then they ran into the temple where the soldiers weren't allowed to go. And they pretended to be worshiping. The soldiers came next door to the Antonio Fortress, told Pontius Pilate, said, we've got the criminals. They're in the temple mountain area, in the sacrificial area, pretending to worship. They're not worshipers, they're criminals. Pontius Pilate gave a terse order. He said, go kill them there. And those soldiers, with a twinkle in their eye, turned on their heels and walked next door and kicked the doors of the temple down. And the soldiers burst into where Gentiles are not allowed to go. And not only that, they drew their swords and their spears and they surrounded those criminals. And they, it was a bloodbath is what it was. It was a massacre. They hacked those criminals to pieces with swords right in front of the altar of God so that the sacrificial lamb on the altar and the blood of the criminals was all intermingled together. It was an absolute massacre. The Jews went berserk. They went absolutely crazy. And they poured out into the streets and a rebellion ensued and a riot ensued. And it's such a big deal, like I said, Jesus in Luke 13 is talking about this incident. Pilate did not understand the Jewish leaders. He did not understand the Jewish laws. He's a Roman. Their system works very differently. So Pilate decided to let them have their own court. You rule over the Jewish matters. I'll rule over the civil, the Roman matters. And uh, you rule over your own business, Jews, and I'll allow you to have authority but he wanted to show the Jews that he had power over them ultimately. He was a bully. He, and he wanted everybody to know that he was the one with power. So he said, you Jews can have your own court called the Sanhedrin. Pharisees and scribes and chief rulers and elders. You read about it all in your New Testament. He said, you can have your own court. But if you ever want to condemn anybody to death, you have to come to me to execute the death penalty. I retain the power of Jews gladii. 
gladiator. The law of the sword is mine alone. I am Rome, and Rome is in charge. And if you ever forget who's in charge, it's me. And if you ever want to actually execute somebody, your power is limited right there. You've got to come and talk to Rome if you want to execute the death sentence. And it seems like everything Pilate did caused one uproar after another uproar, one riot after another riot, until the Roman Senate got so sick of it that the Roman Senate actually recalled Pontius Pilate to get on a ship and sail back to Rome and give an account of the Middle East riots in person to the Senate. Now, can you imagine how, how tough that was? They've got the written reports. They've got the headlines. They've got the internet articles all in front of them, you know. And they're just like, riot, 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 massacre, violated the sacrifice, idols in the city. Just it's one report after another, Pilate. Seriously, what we want is peace and the taxes. Keep the taxes coming. The more people you kill, the less taxes we have. Keep the taxes flowing into Rome. It's about money, it's about power, and that's all it's about, money and power. Keep the peace, maintain the power, keep the money flowing into the coffers of Rome. Pilate, one more report from the Middle East with the word riot in it, and you're out. Your governorship is over. You will be recalled and maybe worse. Maybe worse, okay? You got the message, sir? He said, yes, I've got the message. And if things could not get any worse while Pilate was in Rome, the plot to kill Caesar was uncovered and Sejanus, his own boss, was implicated. Everybody Sejanus had written a letter of recommendation for and put into office is now being looked at as a potential usurper to the throne of Rome. And they called them all in and began to question them. Pilate escaped execution by the skin of his teeth. They couldn't find hard evidence that he was involved in it. And he escaped by the skin of his teeth from being executed in the Sejanus plot. They said, you get your butt on that ship and you go back to the Middle East and keep the money moving and keep the peace. No more riots. And things went along okay for a little bit. Until one morning, very early in the morning, Pilate's still in bed. There's a knock at the door and soldiers are awakening Pilate and they told him the Jewish leaders have been up all night. They've been trying one of their own. They found him guilty and they want to put him to death. Matthew 27 is one of the most dramatic passages in all of scripture and maybe in all of human history. Pilate got out of bed He got dressed and he went down to the judgment seat. I'm reading from Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all of the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus. What's the word? Only Pilate can do that. So they bound him. They bound him. Jesus. They bound him and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So in your mind, I want you to see Jesus before the Jews and them binding his hands. I want you to see them taking a rough, thick rope and binding the hands that touched a little girl and raised her to life. I want you to see them binding the hands of Jesus as if he's some criminal 
as if he's some threat to human life. I want you to see them binding the hands that touched blind man's eyes and gave him his sight. In your mind, I want you to see them binding the hands of Jesus, the same hands that touched man's ears, a man who could not hear and restored his hearing. Those are the hands that they are binding. And now we've come to decision time. Here comes the clash of kingdoms. And here are the three things I want you to know this morning. Your decision is going to affect your career. Pilate was very crafty. He was a politician as well as a military man. And politics was his future. He had seen like things like this before. And so Pilate began to question Jesus and get both sides of the story. Now, I'd just pause here and say to you, don't make a judgment until you know the story. Both sides of the story, all the details of the story. Pilate's pretty sharp on this point. He hears what the Jewish leaders are saying, but now he has Jesus bound before him. And so he begins to question Jesus. It's in John 19, verse 4. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you. I'm questioning him. I'm talking to him. I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, KJV, Behold the man. Here's the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw Jesus saw him. They shouted. Listen to these Jews rioting now. What are they saying? Away with Rome? No, they're saying we want Rome to crucify this man. Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Pilate told the Jewish leaders, You go make your own decision about Jesus. But they said, Mr. Pilate, you made sure that only you could issue the death sentence and crucify someone. So Pilate's being pressured now. He interviews Jesus for a while and he came to a conclusion. His conclusion was not guilty. Old KJV is famous for this language. I find no fault in him. Not guilty. Guilty is my conclusion, and I'll say to you as a sidebar, people from Pilate's day to our day who've had communion with Jesus Christ and got to know Jesus Christ and have tried to understand Jesus Christ and have had communion with Jesus Christ and fellowship with the Word of God, everyone has always come to the same conclusion. I find no fault in him, not guilty. Pilate told the mob, I have no problem crucifying someone else. Crucifying people doesn't bother me at all. I've had a lot of people killed. No big deal. We can line the highway with with people if you want to crucify people. But let's make sure they're guilty of something, okay? Let's make sure they're rebels and brigands and and usurpers. Let's have a genuine charge against them. And if you've got a genuine charge against somebody, I have no problem shedding some Jewish blood. No, he didn't. But he had a problem shedding Jesus' blood at this moment. He says, I find no fault in him. Can you imagine what happened with the crowd in this moment? You're beginning to read it now in the Bible. The crowd went into a riot, a wild rage. They began to scream, crucify, crucify, 
Pilate's like, oh my goodness, I've got to get this crowd in order. I've got to get this calmed down very quickly. It's Passover. There are hundreds of thousands of people gathered here. This cannot turn into a riot. Get the press out of here. Get the TV cameras out of here. Get the reporters out of here. This cannot be made into a public scene. My future and my life could be on the line. He's being pressured into a decision. Now, it won't come this way to you, but it will come this way. Every one of us eventually has to make a decision about Jesus. Is he your king or not? And then Pilate has to decide right now, do you stand with Jesus or do you stand with Caesar? And to make matters more complicated, Pilate's wife now interrupts the trial that is in progress. Your decision is going to affect your family is what I discovered from the text. Pilate, she said, I've got a bad feeling about this. Pilate, honey, I've got a terrible foreboding about what we're involved in right here. This is going to affect us, I'm afraid. Boy, nobody was ever more prophetic than she was. Matthew 27, verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. We have the recording here. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. For I've suffered many things, a great deal today in a dream because of him. So in your mind, I want you to see it's very early in the morning. They got Pilate out of bed for this trial. Pilate dressed and went down to the trial. They've had some conversations. He's questioned Jesus. It's still very early in the morning. And now I want you to see Claudia, the princess. I want you to see Claudia running from her bedroom, pale, sweating, desperate, haunted by a nightmarish dream. The Bible records the phrase, sitting on the judgment seat. That's written in your Bible to tell you more about Pilate's posture and geographical location. Sitting on the judgment seat means the trial is underway. You ever been in a courtroom? And the bailiff says, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please rise. Damon McMurdo presiding. And everybody better get on your feet. The bailiff's there to make sure you respect the judge. You w- and when he sits on the, on the bench, the trial is in session. The court reporter is now recording everything that happens in the room We are conducting official business now. Pilate is on the throne. He's on the bench, if you would. They were on the record. They were not in recess. They were on the record when when she made her appearance. And I can assure you that it was not the custom of Claudia to interrupt her husband when he was in the middle of a trial, especially a trial as explosive as this one. But what's the consensus of what she's trying to say? Leave Jesus alone. Honey, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Listen, can we think about something else right now? Can, can, we, just, Paul, can we just go on vacation? Can we think about something else? Can, can we abstain? Can we be neutral? Can we vote present? Can we do something to distance ourselves from this decision between us and Jesus Christ. No, Claudia, I'm afraid you can't be neutral. The trial has started and you know what the outcome of a Roman trial is likely to be. 
a Roman cross. Now you, ladies and gentlemen, have heard hundreds and hundreds of gospel messages. Maybe you could do some math and figure that out. Hundreds is very conservative. You've heard hundreds and hundreds of gospel messages and Bible stories and Bible lessons in your life. And you've had decades and decades and years and years to process all of that information that you've heard from the Bible about who Jesus is and who God is and and how uh, he loves you. you. You've had time to process all of this information. Here's something I want you to think about. Pilate has to do something on the spot that you've had decades to think about. He's going to have to make a decision right now about King Jesus. So Pilate decided he'd go back in and talk to Jesus a little bit more. And he thought some more about his decision. And when Pilate heard them accuse Jesus of being the Son of God, the Bible says that Pilate began to be afraid. Let me read from John 19. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace and he began to question Jesus. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to free you or the power to crucify you? Now Jesus will answer. You would have no power over me at all if it were not given to you from above. KJV, you'd have no power at all unless my father were to give it to you. It's very clear that Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Pilate's made the right judgment. I find no fault in this man. But he has to follow it with a right decision. I just think about the millions of people who believe there is a God, but they've never prayed and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Half a decision is not a whole decision. Halfway there is not all the way there. And Pilate's about halfway there right now. So I want to be sure that you hearing this morning have clarity on the story the Bible is telling. The Bible is telling a story about a king and his kingdom. And in order for God's kingdom to rule, the other kingdoms have to fall. There can only be one Lord. Is everybody with me on that? The story the Bible is telling all the way to this moment is that there is a king and a kingdom coming and they're going to clash with the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of this world are violent, violent kingdoms filled with monsters and brutal beasts who will do unimaginable things to human beings who do not comply with their power. John 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Kaiser. King. Now the language is all about to change in this story. And you're about to see the story for what it really is. If you let him go, you're no friend of the king... Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat. 
in a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. And Pilate has been pushed into a corner, and now his temper is about to emerge, and the politician is done. And Pilate now changes his language. I want you to watch the language. Pilate sits on the throne, and he says to the Jews, Here is your king. He didn't know he was being prophetic. He didn't know how true he was speaking in this moment. He's losing his cool. But the words are true. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. 15, but they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Watch Pilate's retort. Shall I crucify your king oh now it's it's now it's insult back and forth between Pilate and the Jews shall I crucify your king Pilate asked what's their retort to his retort we have no king but the world's king our king is King Caesar the powers of the world do you understand what's happening in your Bible This is not so much about maybe what we thought it was about. This is about the two kingdoms finally having their moment. And finally reaching the apex of a clash. Pilate's career will not stand the scrutiny of another rebellion or an accusation against Caesar. Can you imagine what would happen after Sejanus was uncovered if somebody wrote a report to Rome and said, hey, this guy's not loyal to you, Caesar. He's over here promoting another king, a Jewish king. Pilate's goose would be cooked. He would be a dead man walking. But if he yields to the crowd, he's guilty of crucifying an innocent man. If he stands with Jesus, there'll be riots and he and his wife will surely die. He'll lose his job. He'll lose his wealth, his standing, everything he's worked for all his life and probably his life. Which leads me to the last thing I want to say to you. Your decision ultimately will affect your soul. So Pilate did something the Jews would understand symbolically. He told his servants, go and get a basin of water. And Pilate went out to the throne and he began to speak to the crowd and He said, I'm going to wash my hands of this whole thing. I'm reading from Matthew 27 now. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he said to the crowd, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Now I know what he said, but I want to ask you a question. I want you to use your legal mind and I want you to use your theological mind right here can a person escape the guilt of rejecting God's son by washing their hands if a person rejects Jesus as Lord can that person find cleansing through religious ceremony I think you're pretty good theologians no you can't reject Jesus and then go to the baptistry and have your sins washed away it doesn't work like that No, you can't reject Jesus as Lord and then light candles and come to church a few times a year and you give a little money to the Salvation Army and have your sins cleansed. You can't be cleansed of rejecting Jesus 
through religious ceremony. There is no religious ceremony. You can't wash your hands and be free of someone's blood, of rejecting the Lord. The only way to be right with God is to be born again. The only way to be born again is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. John 19. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It was common that the crime should be nailed over the offender. So as you went down the Appian Way, you could see this is what you get when you rebel. This is what you get when you cheat. This is what you get when you won't bend the knee to Caesar. This is what you get when you won't pay your tax. This is what you get. And their crime was often nailed to their cross. Pilate had a notice prepared. It read thusly, Jesus of Nazareth, the king. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he had it written in three languages, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek. If you knew those three languages, they were the languages of the world of that day. Much in the same way today, if you knew Chinese and you knew English, and add one more, Spanish, French, you go anywhere in the world and talk to anybody and get directions and never be lost. I think it was quite prophetic what had happened in the three languages of the world, nailed to Jesus' cross for the whole world to watch the spectacle when the two kingdoms finally clashed The accusation of Jesus' cross says, here is God's king. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You're trying to feel right now and process your feelings about understanding the story. But as he hung there, the sun refused to shine. The sky grew dark. And the earth began to quake, and the stones began to tear apart, and the temple began to shake, and a Roman soldier standing by the cross, a Roman soldier like all Roman soldiers who had to say, Caesar is God, Caesar is the Son of God, this is my allegiance, a soldier standing by the cross when all of this was happening looked up and said, no, Caesar's not the Son of God. Surely we have crucified the Son of God. Something's happening in this moment that goes far beyond a normal crucifixion. And I wish I had time to unpack it all for you, but for sake of time, let me bring it to a close and fast forward the story six years. Six years from the crucifixion. Let me just fast forward the story. Not the story of Jesus' death, burial, we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, but let me fast forward Pilate's story six years. Six years later, Pilate lost his governorship. Six years later, Pilate was recalled by Rome, stripped of his rank, stripped of his office, stripped of his governorship. He was a bad governor, didn't do a great job. Riot, 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 disaster, disaster, mismanagement, and he lost 
his job anyway is heartbreaking when I think about this because I just see the people I've known all my life and I superimpose their picture right here. People who have traded King Jesus for career. People who've traded King Jesus for sports. People who've traded King Jesus for comfort. People who've traded King Jesus for pleasure. And they've lost it all anyway. They just don't know it yet. But in a few years, the realization will hit them. You don't have what you left Jesus for. He lost his governorship anyway. Pilate could have been the hero of history. Pilate, rather than being the villain in the Apostles' Creed, he could have been the hero of Christianity. Pilate could have risen from the judgment seat, walked down the steps and stood next to Jesus Christ and said, I'm on your side. Rome's a beast. Rome's bloody and violent and cruel and merciless. But you're preaching love and kindness and faith in God. I stand with Jesus Christ. He could have gone down there and stood next to the Son of God and said, I believe you are king. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna, I've, I've tried Caesar for a while. This is a mess. I think I'll be loyal to you. That sounds like a better plan to me. Pilate could have been a hero. You may be thinking, Pastor, I, you know, if I, if I stood next to Jesus Christ, you don't know what my family would say about me or say to me. It's so real when we minister in Asia and what I say to them who are listening this morning, knowing your family will turn against you, you'd be better off to sacrifice your family on the altar of right than to sacrifice Jesus Christ on the altar of wrong. Take your stand with Jesus Christ. And I know people are listening around the world and they're saying, Pastor, you don't know what my country would do to me if I proclaim allegiance to King Jesus. You'd be better off to lose your citizenship than to stand against King Jesus. Pilate could have been famous for saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Pilate could have been famous and could have been called the Apostle Pontius Pilatus. Christianity's villain could have been one of Christianity's heroes. You say, you're just way out there right now, Pastor. Am I? I just imagine Pilate putting his faith in Jesus, getting recalled to Rome in chains, being hauled before Caesar in the Senate, and standing there in chains and doing exactly what the Apostle Paul did. I stand here before you on my beliefs, and he preached Christ to them. And what did the Roman rulers say to Paul? Almost, Paul, you persuade me to be a Christian. Pilate preaches before the Senate, would be the headlines in Rome. Roman governor, now follower of rebel King Jesus. How wonderful that would have been. You're thinking, Pastor, it could never happen. Well, maybe not. But did you know that November the 9th, is a feast day of Claudia Procula, Pontius Pilate's wife. November 9th, let me go slow. November 9th 
is the feast day to Claudia Procula, who is recognized as a believer by the Greek Orthodox, the Coptic, and the Ethiopian churches of the Middle East. Now, what I'm saying to you is conjecture. I don't know. How would I have a way of knowing? Certainly there's no way for me to verify this. I can just tell you what's on their calendar every year on November 9th. There's no way for me to know for sure. But I can tell you this, I've read the Gospels and people who met Jesus had a hard time getting over him. And people who had personal encounters with Jesus and met him face to face never forgot the meeting. And people that Jesus' life touched, their life was never the same after Jesus touched their life. They became loyal subjects. I don't know whether she got saved or not, but some of the Christian churches believe she did. And their history says she did. I want to ask you a question this morning, a very personal question, but one that affects your career, one that affects your family, and one that ultimately affects your soul. Is Jesus God's king or not? And if he is, what do we need to do about it? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. That's the backstory. And now that you've heard the backstory, I don't think you'll ever forget it. You'll understand why the crucifixion happened the way it happened because you understand the backstory. Two kingdoms collided one day in Jerusalem. And when those kingdoms collided, one king was heading to a cross that morning. And you may be thinking in your heart and in your mind, you may be thinking, well, Jesus lost. No, 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 no. That's exactly the way he won. Keep reading the story. We're just in the middle of it right now. This isn't the end. When he comes out of the tomb on the third day, he has conquered the kingdoms of this world and the new creation is in play and he is the first fruits of those who died and are now in a resurrected body. No King Jesus wins, but he wins through suffering. But now that you know the story, what are you going to do about it? That's the question. It's not just a story so we have a story. It's a story that demands a response, a human response from our hearts. Now what? Well, now I'm confronted with who's Lord of my life. That's why. I know the Roman Empire is long gone, but the remnants of it are living still in our government systems around the world. Who's in charge of this thing anyway? For me, Jesus. Now you're going to have to confront your own fear about where you stand with Jesus Christ. And that's not easy to do. I get it. Wasn't easy for Pilate. It's not easy for us. Wasn't easy for the apostles. Sometimes they ran in fear. Sometimes they stood strong. This morning, if you've never called upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to muster the courage and the faith this morning to once and for all bow the knee to Jesus. Settle this matter in your heart that He is the King and Lord and Savior of your life. And there is no turning back for you and I. 
forward with Jesus is where we're going to go. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want to ask you to call upon Him right now and pledge your allegiance to Him. You may be thinking, Pastor, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what the words are for that. Well, there's no set formula. There's no set scripted phrase. Just from your heart, pour your heart out to Him. I can help guide you. How about this? Lord Jesus, I believe you are who the Bible proclaimed you to be. I believe you are God's King. I believe you are the Lord and Savior of the world. And this morning I confess to you that I'm a sinner and I need you as my Lord and Savior. I can't save myself. I'm not worthy of your love, but in your mercy and grace... You've offered me forgiveness, and this morning I want to say yes to that. And I want to say yes to your lordship in my life. I want to say yes to you as my king. So Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart today and save me and be the king and lord of my life. And Lord, from this moment, my allegiance is pledged to you. All my life, I'm going to serve you and follow you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to let you direct my life. I'm going to go where you say to go, and I'm going to do as best I can what you tell me to do. You're 100% in charge. Thank you for loving me, and thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Congregation, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. There's a lot more than a salvation message here. Whenever I talk about Pontius Pilate and see the clash of the kingdoms, I'm always challenging myself about where my loyalty lies. Not about salvation for me. It's about how often I listen to my king and how often I ignore my king. And is he my king if I ignore him all the time? You can't call him Lord and then say no. No. <laughs> So I want that to be a challenge both to me and to all of us. Let's say the Apostles' Creed now. You're getting well into it, and now you're really hopefully understanding the words that you're reading. Let's begin together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting Amen. God bless you. I'll see you Wednesday night for prayer. Have a blessed week.